This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we'll be talking to Rob Beardsley. Rob is a multifamily syndicator who focuses on acquiring 150 plus unit buildings in Houston, Texas. He'll go over how he got into the commercial real estate investing world and how he underwrites his deals. He'll walk us through the entire process of acquiring a deal in great detail and will give us actionable steps to get started with investing in commercial real estate, regardless of your experience level. He's an amazing individual and I'm proud to have him on the show. Enjoy. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let everyone know who you are and how you got into real estate investing. Sure. Hey everybody, my name is Rob Beardsley. I got into real estate investing primarily through my family. My dad runs a residential brokerage firm, Menlo Atkin Realty, based in Silicon Valley. And just throughout my life growing up, I well, I don't remember this, but my dad used to take me to the, his construction sites when I was in my diapers. And you know, I've always been attracted to to hammers and nails. So, uh, you know, real estate's kind of been in my blood forever. And what are you currently doing as like your main investing strategy? Yeah. So right now. I'm focusing on multifamily acquisitions in Houston, value-add deals that are typically 1970s and 1980s vintage. How did you get into that? You know, you're a pretty young guy. Usually commercial is like a scary thing that people way older are usually getting into. Yeah, it's a good question. Well, it, you know, I was kind of looking for a solution for my dad because he, you know, he's running a successful business in Silicon Valley, but I didn't see him getting out of the rat race. Basically, I, I didn't see him creating that true wealth for himself. And so I thought, what is the solution? You know, and I looked at the stock market and I looked at other investing vehicles and then obviously circled back around to real estate, realizing that, yeah, this is the place to be. And that's when he and I started pursuing uh, multifamily opportunities, understanding that there is a meaningful cash flow component of these deals, which is obviously a major reason why a lot of people get into the business. Okay. And can you talk about your history and what got you to where you are today? Sure. Yeah. So I guess kind of building on what you previously asked, you know, being young and getting into the business through the podcast and listening to mentors and getting into the business, right? There's that typical story of, you know, do the single family and then, you know, do a duplex, then a fourplex, and then get your 12 unit, then a 20, right? And then, you know, as multifamily became more popular, as this cycle you know, has been rising and rising, you're hearing more of this other commentary. No, just go straight for the big, raise capital. You know, the big deals are where it makes sense. 100 units and plus, that's where the management fee becomes more reasonable and the economics, the economies of scale are become really in your favor. And so I really bought into that and felt confident my dad's background and, and kind of boosting my platform giving me a, a door opening to a lot of mentors and, and opportunities. And of course, capital gave me enough confidence to, to pursue these larger deals. And how long ago was all this going on? About two years ago. Okay. Uh, while I was still in school, I began just kind of getting obsessed with multifamily and investing private equity and, and this whole space. And then, uh, while I was in school, I put a $16 million project under contract wow. and then basically, yeah, and going, going through that process, uh, you know, obviously consume my life and 
you know, raising money is not an easy thing to do. And, and so it really took up all my time. And I realized, you know, this is what I really want to do. So I actually left school to pursue it. Perfect. Do you want to talk about, so, so you mentioned that you listened to podcast, had mentors, and you maybe took some courses. Do you want to kind of talk about which ones you did in particular? Sure. So in terms of podcasts, there's the bigger pockets is a, is a great place to start. And then uh, Joe Fairless best ever podcast um, is something I was committed to listening to multiple episodes per day. Um, and then my dad was also very gravitated towards Joe's uh, advice and personality. And we got to know him a little bit and became to know, like, and trust him. And that's when we decided to join his mentorship program, which really allowed us to meet a lot of people and open ourselves up to a lot of opportunities in terms of partnerships and uh, capital raising partners and other opportunities. So that very helpful. Cool. Very nice. Very nice. So how are you currently acquiring your properties? So right now we are sourcing our deals primarily through the broker channels and that's mostly in Houston. So we do get a reasonable amount of off-market deal flow, but that is still typically coming through a broker. Uh, we've encountered a couple of unique uh, opportunities where, you know, a management company knows of a seller looking to sell or a lender that knows of a, of a direct seller. But otherwise, we primarily source our deals through brokers. And then right now, we've been sourcing the equity for these deals through family and friends type investors. Gotcha. So from what I remember meeting you at the conference, it's you and your partner, Kent, right? Right. And now you guys are both in New York. So how is it working? Like, how are you meeting people in Texas? Yeah, so it definitely takes a bit of effort. Luckily, these days, most things can get done over the phone. Uh, we do try to make it to Houston approximately once per month. When we're in Houston, we make the most of it and meet a lot of brokers and make sure we tour property with them. And we were just at NMHC actually in San Diego a couple of weeks ago, which is a terrific event to go to if you want to get a lot of your meetings done in a very short amount of time. So that that's an event, if you don't know, it's host the National Multi-Housing Council. And it's pretty much the largest gathering of apartment professionals in the country. And it happens every year. And it's pretty much an opportunity for us to have all of our in-person meetings with people that we interact with all across the country. So brokers that we talk to about deals in Houston, Dallas, even you know, wh wherever you need to go, Jacksonville, Tampa, Atlanta. So, so we definitely took advantage of that this year. And in terms of operationally, we have very strong boots on the ground in Houston and that helps us get comfortable in the market and, you know, pursue deals with the confidence that we're going to operate and manage that effectively. Is your boots on the ground like your property management team who can take care of all your properties once you guys have them? Right. And we, we're very fortunate to have a, a very strong regional who's managed property in Houston all his life. So we, uh, we really appreciate him and, and leverage his knowledge of the market because whatever deal we're looking at, it's quite possible that he's previously managed it before. Oh, nice. Do you partner with your property manager to give him some skin in the game or is he just, you, you hire him for the, the role? So we, we have done that um, and there's pros and cons to that. Uh, but moving forward, we're looking to keep property management third party or potentially bring it in house. Got it. And can you talk about your buying criteria and maybe underwriting a multifamily deal? Because there's just so many different ways to underwrite deals, especially with multifamily. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And multi and underwriting is kind of my specialty. It's what I focus on, my passion. 
So happy to speak to that. We Our acquisition criteria is 150 units plus. Right now, our main focus is the Houston market. We're looking at, we'll look at older vintage, but the sweet spot is 1980s build. Uh, it needs to have some sort of meaningful value add component. And that could either be interior, exterior renovations, lower occupancy than the market. We think that we can come in and improve the occupancy, uh, amenitize the property and just you know drive rents. It's not too complicated of a game, but like you said, when you start underwriting, that's when things can get really complicated. Mm -hmm. Can we do like a case study maybe of a project you did before in the past? Sure. I'll, uh, I'll talk about a deal we have under contract currently. We Perfect. currently have a 160 unit property under contract in the Bear Creek submarket of Houston. And this deal is actually a little unique. And in terms of the financing is a bit more complex. We identified a property that has a bit lower occupancy than the submarket. We think it's a very strong submarket. So all the surrounding properties are in the mid nineties in terms of occupancy, but this property was trending in the mid eighties. So we felt that while it was a nicely newly renovated asset, there was still opportunity to push the rents a bit and then achieve higher income through increasing the occupancy. And then we coupled that business plan, which is a fairly quick turnaround. If you buy into that idea, uh, you know, quick exterior renovations to increase curb appeal and then manage it properly to aggressively pursue renewals and new leads to the property. And then we coupled that with the debt on the property, which is a bridge to HUD product, which allows us to quickly within a year transition from the bridge loan to a permanent uh, HUD takeout. And we really like this solution because it allows us to, first of all, being that it's under 90% occupancy, agency debt is not available. Yep. So the solution there is obviously bridge, but it's kind of a shame to have to go into bridge on such a nice deal that you know really is already a renovated asset. So we, we chose to go with a slightly lower uh, leverage bridge option that can quickly get us to a HUD. So we'll quickly bring the property to 90% and HUD only really requires 85% occupancy. So it's really already there. However, just the HUD application period itself requires nine months. So it's it's really a long process, but it matches up well with our business plan of turning around the income of the property. Thus, we can pursue a higher valuation from HUD so our investors can come in the deal and then within a year via the takeout loan, get a lot of capital back, lock in a long-term debt on the asset so that even if we do hit a recession, we're in a strong submarket with long-term conservative debt uh, with low amortization so in my opinion, that's the best place you can be in a recession. Can we go over the actual numbers? What's your purchase price? What kind of loan to value are you getting for your bridge loan? And you know, most people don't know what terms are for bridge loans. So what are your terms for a bridge loan? And then like HUD, you know, is there a prepayment penalty? What kind right. of rates are you getting for those? Stuff like that. Okay, yeah. So I'll go in depth on, on all that. So this deal is a, an 11.5 million purchase price, which comes out to being just under 72,000 per door. <clears throat> we have a half a million dollar capex budget that's going to be split approximately to the interiors and the exteriors with the largest capex item being an exterior i'm sorry a perimeter fence to create to make it a gated community because right now all the comparable properties in the area are all gated and this is the biggest complaint that residents have with this property so our plan is to spend the money um, add the perimeter fencing and we think that will definitely allow us to capture more leads that come into the property. 
And then as far as the bridge loan, we're going to be roughly at 77% LTC, I believe. And it's floating rate debt. So it's LIBOR plus, I'll just say 400. We hopefully will do better than that, but just to be conservative. And then, you know, HUD, which is kind of the mysterious, difficult beast, but uh, our plan with HUD is so, so typically HUD has a few different wrinkles, but what makes HUD unique is it's typically going to be the lowest interest rate possible. And it amortizes also typically on a 35 year schedule. So that's, I believe, the longest amortization you can achieve, which increases your debt service coverage ratio. Because obviously, if you have to pay your debt down on a more, on a quicker schedule, it's going to reduce your cash flow and put your loan in a bit more risky position. So we really like the idea that while HUD doesn't offer interest only payments for the first, you know, one to five years of the loan, the amortization is 35 years, which it really makes a difference to the cash flow and thus the debt service coverage ratio. You know, the like you said, you mentioned the prepayment penalty. That is an unfortunate downside of HUD. The prepayment schedule is a step down and it starts at 10% year one and then drifts down. So it doesn't make sense to prepay the loan until about year six, seven. Um, but even then it's expensive. And however, HUD is very assumable. So HUD's assumption fee is only five basis points, uh, which is you know 0.05%. And while agency, Fannie, Freddie, their assumption fees are 1%. So we're talking a 20% cheaper assumption fee. And also there's a, a niche of buyers that are looking specifically to purchase property that have HUD in place. So basically purchase HUD assumptions. And the reason for this is because, like I mentioned, HUD is a really long process to actually put the debt on. But an assumption, meaning buying the property subject to the HUD loan, is not as rigorous of a process or as uh, time consuming. So it is attractive to a certain type of buyer. Cool. Great information. I just want to clarify some stuff. So you're saying the 10-year step-down schedule is like 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, all the way down to 1. 10 years. Yes. And then after 10 years on the HUD, it's completely free to prepay for the rest of the 35-year term of the loan. Okay. Second thing is, can you put a supplemental debt on top of it? So let's say someone buys it from you, but you right. know, they want more, right? right? It's not enough leverage. That, right. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I'd imagine someone will give it to you. Because I know in, in, for the agencies, you know, you can go and get supplemental from the senior lender. So, you know, Fannie Mae is the senior note that you're assuming. You can go back to Fannie on the same deal and say, hey, I want a supplemental. Exactly. HUD doesn't, ha- HUD doesn't have a supplemental product, but mm. if, the, if the loan documents allow, then you could put some sort of third party, uh, you know, se- second junior, you know, man. Got it. Yep. Makes sense. It allows. I'm not sure if it allows. Sounds good. Sounds good. So... Can you kind of walk me through the process of acquiring a property and maybe uh, closing on it or turning it around with like some actual timelines? Yeah. So it's, it's a lot more complicated than what you first think, right? You think, oh, well, all I have to do is put under contract, look at, you know, do some due diligence, do some inspections, and then line up the debt, raise the equity, and I'm done. And that's pretty much true, but it is it is a challenging and, and complex process. So I'll, I'll try to hit on the most important points in, in a bit more detail. So, you know, the typical process is you'll be, you, you'll like, you'll see the deal, review the deal, 
figure out what price works for you, submit an LOI. And then since we're in a very hot market, you know, likely we're talking about a marketed deal and you'll be invited to a best and final round of bidding. So they'll ask you to go back and see if you can push your numbers to get to a higher price. So of course you do, you come back, submit your best and final offer. You'll likely be at that point asked for your best and final interview call. Uh, so there'll be a call potentially with the sellers and the broker, um, and there'll be a bunch of questions for you to talk to specifically, you know, what's your source of equity, how, what's your business plan, uh, and just kind of get into the details and get an understanding of you as the buyer so that the seller is comfortable transacting with you. Now, at this point, have you written the contract yet or just all still LOI, no lawyers are involved? This is right. This is just all the preliminary LOI phase. And now you're kind of in the best and final and then if, if you, your offer is chosen in the best and final, then you know, you're going to be working towards uh, a PSA, purchase and sale agreement. And that is when the lawyers get involved. And you know, typically, uh, the seller may already have a PSA pre-drafted and, and some sort of format that they're interested in using. And then that's a starting point. Then you, 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 know, you make some comments and some objections and then kind of go back and forth on the negotiating points. And then hopefully without too much delay, you know, put it under contract and then wire your earnest money deposit, which these days it's most likely hard, meaning non-refundable day one of the contract. So this is before you even walk through the property, right? Because you're in New York. Right. <laughs> well, but I mean, we've definitely by that time come and toured the property and, and done some preliminary due diligence. However, you're right. The, the actual due diligence period or the contract hasn't become effective yet. So... So I'm just wondering, and like I said, a lot of when you're doing your LOI mm -hmm. process, like you see a bunch of deals, right? And I'm sure you throw LOIs on almost any deal at certain numbers. When do you actually go say, okay, I'm going to go tour the property? We typically will want to go and see the property if we're in best and final and we are seriously, you know, really considering this asset and, and doing the other due diligence necessary of, of making a serious run at the acquisition, you know, putting a budget together and contacting lenders for quotes and you know really sharpening our business plan you, you put it under contract now you've wired your hundred thousand two hundred thousand and it's non-refundable so if you go inspect the property and you find out that you know the galvanized plumbing is needing completely to be replaced or the roofs or, or whatever it is you know you're you're kind of screwed so there is a something if you are going to be going non-refundable with your earnest money deposit day one you definitely want to try your best to negotiate in a pre-access period. So prior to actually executing the contract and going non-refundable with your deposit, you'll request for a mini due diligence or a pre-access period, which gives you access to randomly select 10% of the units to access the interiors and, and take a look. Uh, and then also access 10% at random, uh, the lease files, kind of do a mini lease audit in their office. And then, of course, at that time, it's in your best interest to have somebody, whether it be a trusted contractor or an inspector, to give the exterior look over. So in most, I guess, courses and books, they tell you to look through every single unit. I mean, is that like not feasible or why do we only do 10 percent? So, well, they just they just won't let you do that in the pre-access period, right? Oh, pre-access. They'll, they'll let you. Yeah. So during the mini diligence, before you've actually, you know, put your earnest money deposit up. Makes sense. Go they'll ahead. give you that access. But yeah, so we, you know, we walk every unit and and do a complete audit of, of their lease files and and their back office uh, once we're actually in the due diligence period of the contract. Okay, so let's say PSA signed, boom, 
how long do you oh. how long is your term usually 60 day you know 90 day i don't know yeah so I, our, our standard is a 30-day due diligence with a 30-day close after that okay um the quickest we've done is 21 day due diligence with a 30-day close thereafter you know it, it, it doesn't really even take that long for the due diligence period and if your money is non-refundable day one a due diligence period isn't really that material because you know in a normal contract if your money is refundable it won't become non-refundable until the due diligence period expires um which is obviously the preferable preferred method to go so <clears throat> but you know if you're hard day one it, it almost doesn't matter but you still want to go quickly through your inspections and kind of try to get everything done as quickly as possible because you know when you're under contract and, and i am right now it, time just flies and, and every day is so important absolutely so you know what kind of inspections do you need to do for your due diligence and just kind of walk through the rest of the, the process yeah so, so like i mentioned it's primarily the in the unit walkthroughs so walking through uh every unit and assessing the condition of the major items of the interior and kind of getting a sense of what needs to be replaced what renovations are we trying to implement and what is our repairs and maintenance budget going to look like on an ongoing basis you know the what are we going to need to repair as these units turn and then for the exteriors like i said you know roofs um, railings concrete um, oftentimes you know pools need work you know so we have contractors on site bidding different uh, projects for the exteriors. And then, like I mentioned in the office, we're looking at the lease files and gonna be putting together our own version of the rent roll as we see it, and then comparing it to what they've given us thus far. And so we're looking for discrepancies. Okay. And then, sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say, you know, I've heard about like surveys and other kind of inspections. Yes, yeah, so, so that would be, that would be coming from the lender. Your lender is going to order third-party reports. That's going to be an appraisal, environmental survey, and a PCR property condition report. Yeah, so that is ordered by your lender, and that's those are very important because you know the lender doesn't like what he sees. You might <laughs> you might not be too happy with him. So yeah, so those are absolutely a must, and are very important because if your appraisal comes back uh, not very in line with your purchase price, then your proceeds might get cut by your lender. If the phase one of the you know the environmental survey comes back with a red flag you know you might have to spend money and order a phase two and the pcr is going to point out things that your lender will be asked to have you actually pre-raise a budget to renovate immediately and then there'll be maybe 12 month items so things that you have to do immediately and you might have to escrow capital with the lender in order to get those things done so yeah, those are all, you know, third-party reports are very important. When they escrow your money, they don't even give it to you, right? When you have to do the repairs, you have to pay for it first and then they give you your money back from the escrow? <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, there's different ways you can structure a, a renovation holdback. But yeah, the there's there's a, you know, the way like you mentioned um, where you have to actually lay out the capital and then get a reimbursement after they have, inspected and actually seen that the work has been completed so it can be a long time before you get reimbursed the more ideal way to go about it is a, a two-party check um, <clears throat> where you know you're basically signing a check and it's gonna they're on that check as well got it 
So is there something that you'll see in an apartment where you're like, mm, I'm not going to touch this and you're going to back away from the deal? You know, I try not to to think that way because I think there's opportunity everywhere and especially where a lot of people might back away. For example, typically flat roofs are negative. Galvanized plumbing is negative. But if you know what you're doing and you accurately underwrite to the necessary ongoing repairs and maintenance associated with galvanized plumbing and you raise enough capex because you think you will have to replace these flat roofs or whatever the case may be and you basically price in those things accordingly into the deal and you win the deal at that price that that made sense for you then that's a good deal i mean so it all just has to come together uh, in a holistic way in the underwriting but Typically, yeah, I mean, those things I mentioned, flat roof and galvanized plumbing, I bring that up. I underwrote a deal today that, that has both of those things and, you know, kind of had to go back and think, okay, how can I accurately discount those negatives into the underwriting? And so, you know, accurately reflect that so I'm not overbidding for the asset. Because, you know, maybe you find an old property in bad shape and it has some of these unappealing features but you plug in the numbers and it, and it looks like a great deal. It's a 18 IRR and you say, oh, this is fantastic. I'm going to bid. But little do you know, you're going to actually need, you know, half a million more for deferred maintenance. And you're going to need a, a higher ongoing repairs and maintenance budget because of some of these items. So let me think if there's anything else that's just kind of a no-go. I mean, for us, we're value-add buyers. So if I see a deal that was built 1990 or even or 1990 or newer, that's pretty much a no-go for me. It's just not going to have the opportunity, most likely, or meat on the bone to renovate and, and achieve premiums on the property. Okay. While we're on the same topic, do you want to talk about why flat roofs are bad and why galvanized plumbing isn't ideal for apartment buildings? Yeah, so I'm, I'm definitely not an expert. I don't know construction, so I don't know exactly why flat roofs are worse. I, I don't think they're necessarily more expensive, but uh, may, they might be more prone to leaks and, and just uh, have more problems in general. But don't quote me on that. And then galvanized plumbing, kind of same story. It's just expensive to replace. I think once it starts having issues, it's, it's got a lot of issues and you're likely needing to go drill and get underground. And, you know, that's expensive stuff to fix down there and, and replace it with PVC. Okay, makes sense. You know, we talked about your buying criteria before, but I don't think we got into the actual numbers. So what are you looking for in a property in terms of I don't know. What metrics do you look for to say this is a good deal or this is not a good deal? Yeah. So kind of return return metrics and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. Like some people look at cash on cash. Some people look at IRR. You know, there's all these different kinds. Right. Right. So, you know, the the market, I think, is, is very compressed right now. If you look at just the historical relationship between multifamily cap rates and the 10-year treasury, which is, you know, the, the, the risk-free proxy rate for real estate, uh, right now there's a a very small spread. It's very tight compared to historically, and then it's quite similar to the 2006, 2007. So returns have really come down. And in this low return environment, there's a, a few decisions you can make, right? You can say, well, hey, I'm not, these deals aren't underwriting as good as before, so what do we do? We can take more risk to try to get the same return as before. We can take the same amount of risk and do the same type of deals we've been doing and just accept the fact that we're gonna get lower returns. Or we can even curtail our risk and get an even lower return than before. And it's a lower return because I'm taking less risk. So 
that's pretty much your options. And in my opinion, I think it's most prudent to actually lean to the, do the same type of risk or even bring your risk profile in a bit. So to that effect, I mean, we're, we're looking at deals to pencil at least uh, to a 14% IRR net to our investors. And that of course depends on the risk of the deal. So if we're pursuing a more heavy value add, requiring a bridge loan, you know, more debt, less cash flow, then we're going to want to see the IRR push a little higher, closer to 17. And then cash on cash obviously varies as well. If we're pursuing a deal that is a more of a lift and, and we're banking on capital appreciation or you know greatly increasing income, we're okay with less cash on cash in the early uh, you know couple of years of the deal. But in the end, we're shooting on a five-year term to get to 9% cash on cash average. Okay, five-year term. So is that your plan five-year exit or is that just five-year you want to be on nine percent cash on cash yeah so we try to underwrite all deals to a five-year term that's just a way for us to normalize the return so we can better compare apples to apples because if i have a deal over here that's a two-year term and over here is a 10-year and i'm trying to compare them it's it's very difficult uh you know the two year might look really good because I'm quickly buying it and flipping out of it and, and, and getting a, a big capital gain. Uh, meanwhile, a, a 10 year deal might look really good depending on your assumptions, because if you're projecting 3% rent growth and only 2% expense growth, and you're extrapolating that o- over 10 years, I mean, that that's going to be some serious compounding that's going to take place and heavily influence the, in my opinion, true projected returns of the property. So so yeah, five years, in my opinion, gives the property enough time so you can map out the stabilization period and then a nice maybe two to three years of just steady, stable growth. Got it. So day one doesn't need a cash flow, right? Some people are like day one, 10 cap. And I'm like, that's not, <laughs> it's not very realistic in this, in this market. Right. Okay. That's good. So just 14 RRR and you're set. Um, do you want to talk yeah. about your deal structure with your private investors, your syndication structure? Sure. So right now we're doing 506B private placements. So our investors are coming in as limited partners, class A uh, shareholders of the LLC that takes direct ownership of the property. And so this allows investors to obviously be owners of the entity, uh, but yet be completely protected against any liability above and beyond their investment you know so as as sponsors of the deal we're taking on certain risks while in my opinion are very you know far out risks and unlikely to occur but you know if something does crazy happen on the property we could you know be on the hook for a 10 20 million dollar loan so it's always a plus when you're not on the hook for that but so so for our investors uh, like i said they're coming in as class A members and we're offering them currently on our most recent deals an 8% preferred return. And for those that don't know, that means that the cash flows after debt service that are available for distribution, those are due to the investors uh, up to 8% of their invested capital and that accrues. So if we don't meet it in year one, which is quite common for deals these days, the shortfall carries over and just continues to accrue over time until the investors are made whole, either through eventually the cash flow is catching up or through a capital event, meaning we refi or sell 
uh, that prep doesn't go away, even on sale, if we haven't caught it up yet, that money's got to catch up the investors. And then after the prep is caught up, the cash flows are split typically on a 25% to 75% split or 30, 70 in favor of investors. Okay. So it just depends on the deal, whether it's 25, 75 and 30, 70, right? Yeah. Right. Gotcha. Okay. Very cool. And just to clarify, is your IRR for the entire deal, your 14% or is that the investor's side that you want to see investors get 14% of the IRR? Yeah. We want investors to receive that 14%. So that 14% is net of fees. And then often that translates to a project level IRR of 17, 18. Gotcha. You want to talk about some of the biggest challenges you faced um, going through your investing career? Sure. I would say, you know, I think uh, a lot of challenges are still ahead. Uh, Real estate's an evolving game and full of surprises. But uh, being younger, I think an important challenge to overcome is facing credibility issues or experience issues. And I think, you know, there's no reason to get discouraged. It just requires to put in a little bit more effort in terms of building strong relationships and having more experienced partners around you to, to really help, whether it's for raising capital or for even gaining credibility with brokers, so them to take you seriously as a buyer. Uh, these things are, are very important and something that, you know, I'm lucky to have, you know, somewhat figured out what I'm doing, but there's, there's still ongoing struggles. Uh, for example, for these larger deals, we need the key principals or the sponsors of the deal that make up the, the management group have to have a net worth equaling the loan balance on these deals often. And so we're doing deals, you know, anywhere from 10 to $20 million loans. And that means I need to be able to have built these relationships with people that are ready and willing to co-sign a, a loan that they'd be responsible for alongside us and that do have that net worth. And so, you know, that requires a little bit of um, work as well, but it's really well worth it. I think it's a, it's a great business to be in and, and the, these relationships are, are long, long term. So I'm excited. Very nice. Can you talk about um, how you found your partner and, you know, what kind of, uh, what was his background in real estate and what kind of experience does he have in this field? Sure. So we actually, Kent and I met at the Best Ever Conference last year. So as of this recording, we just, you and I just recently met at this year's Best Ever, but my partner and I met at last year's. And we were both independently searching for Houston acquisitions. And it was just kind of funny. I bumped into him and, and mentioned a deal I was looking at. And he said, oh, I'm looking at that deal too. And we kind of compared notes. And, and he liked the way I was underwriting. And he's, he was still at his uh, day job as a tax attorney. So for him, his pain point was, hey, I don't have time to underwrite all these deals. You know, I'm in the Houston market. You know, not he's, he's living in New York City. But he, he was traveling to Houston and, you know, had built some quality relationships in Houston. So, so he had the deal flow in Houston, but just couldn't underwrite it all. We just given his, uh, his full-time job. And so that's kind of where I came in and I said, Hey, I, I specialize in the underwriting. This is what I like to do. I'm good at it. And so it just, it just made sense for us because it, it was pretty funny back at that time. I had recently undergone a big, uh, revamp of my underwriting model. I had this brilliant new model ready to go and no deals to underwrite. So it was kind of perfect to, to connect with him and start being able to put a lot of new deals through, uh, through the model. So, so yeah. And then from there, we just kind of grew the relationship and 
And then shortly thereafter, we, you know, so we started pursuing a few different acquisitions. We hunt, were hunting down a, a really quality, uh, well-priced off-market portfolio over a thousand units, but you know, we, we weren't able to tie it down, but that's okay because it led directly to our acquisition of a 261 unit property on the same street. So that's kind of what launched uh, him and I's partnership and got him to, to leave his full-time job. Awesome. And did he do any uh, multifamily stuff before this one or was that his like first one with you? Yeah. So prior to that, he was doing a, a little bit of multifamily. He was uh, getting pretty seriously into it, already had his eye on the exit in terms of his full-time job. Uh, he had uh, passively invested in deals. He had uh, acted in, in an advisory capacity or just helped out, raise capital uh, on some other deals in Houston and Dallas. And, uh, you know, this was both of our big leap into doing our own deal all, all ourselves. Awesome. I'm glad to hear that your 260-unit went by pretty smoothly. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think your first deal, no matter the size is, is going to be, uh, you know, challenging and full of unexpected twists and turns, but, uh, you know, we made it to the other side. I'm still here. No. Yeah. Seriously. Because I think you're the youngest person I know who's actually done a deal that size. And most people are just too scared to do like, even me, I was thinking about getting a 30 unit because it was small, you know, but it's good. You're thinking big. Why not? It's the same work. Exactly. Exactly. Why not? It's the same work. And if you do a 30 unit deal, I'd love to partner. Um, it, it's, it's, it's all about partners and, and making the deal work. And I, I really do think the only thing, the only difference uh, between these smaller or larger deals is just the confidence. And, uh, you know, I'm just lucky to be, to have been surrounded by people that allowed me to be confident. That's right. And it's not about your own resources. It's about being resourceful, how to find people who have the resources you don't have. Yep. Absolutely. Cool. So do you have any tips for any new investors? Yeah. So it depends what role you're trying to play or how you're trying to get involved. But, you know, there's just so many different pieces of the puzzle when you're talking about these acquisitions. And I'm sure in any business, this is true. But I think it is important to assess your skill set and then understand that if that's you, everything else needs to be, you know, outsourced or partnered up with. Um, to to help out. And I think a great way to do that is to partner with a, a sponsor that's that's already doing deals and is looking for help with um, raising capital because raising capital is a great experience because it gives you obviously direct experience with uh, investor relations and and raising capital. It helps bolster your experience and gives you something to talk about when you're talking with investors about your future deals, you say, Hey, I know I've raised money before it was on this deal. And, and so I'm a partner in that project. And so I think raising capital is a great way to get started. Um, actually my very first deal was just in a capital raising capacity. I think that's a, a good way to get started. And, <clears throat> you know, something that's not as often talked about, or maybe just mentioned offhand as the underwriting, but you know, really, if you're going to go into this, all on your own and try to find your own deals, the underwriting is the most important component because if you can't get a, a handle of, of valuation, then you're really just out there on your on your own and subject to bidding wars or just uncertainty in it. 
actually having quality underwriting that you believe in and trust allows you to confidently bid for opportunities because you know the market is relatively efficient but real estate still a, a pretty inefficient marketplace compared to the stock market for example so but inefficient doesn't just mean that means you can find bargains it also means that you can overpay right if you hop on your brokerage account and buy a piece of apple or you know stock of apple uh, you're not going to overpay. You'll pay exactly what the market is, you know, the, whatever the bid to ask is right then and there. But in real estate, you know, you might get into a best and final round and just overbid. And so being able to rely on strong underwriting is hugely important. And I think that can't be overlooked. Absolutely. And I mean, I had this problem myself because I read so many books, you know, from like Dave Lindahl or even Michael Blanc, uh, even Joe Fairless, right? They tell you how to underwrite deals. But then when you really do it, you're making all these assumptions that may or may not be true, right? So, uh, yeah, yeah, and you don't know. But if you have a good underwriting model, hey, numbers are numbers. They don't lie. So I see. Exactly. Gotcha. Yeah, absolutely. So where have you seen people failing the most? I mean, sticking it with the topic of underwriting, I think, I think people have uh, been making a lot of mistakes in their underwriting over the last, we'll just say, five years or maybe longer. But due to this economic expansion, massive compression in cap rates, really low interest rates, um, we've, and obviously this massive growth in uh, rent. We've pretty much seen the perfect storm for not only valuations in multifamily to climb, but net operating income to climb. And this perfect storm is a great way to pretty much hide and wash away all errors in your underwriting. Because you know, if you projected a certain rent growth or property tax increase, uh, you know, or, or by, by rent growth, I mean uh, renovation. So after you've renovated the unit, you think you'll get $1,000 uh, in rent. You know, if you're off, and but rent growth is jumping at 6% every year, I mean, eventually you'll be made right. And then, you know, just the whole property appreciating that quickly. So, so I think, I think we're over the next five years are not going to be in store for the same perfect storm that we've experienced over the last five years. And I think there'll be a moderating of valuation. So I think cap rates will stay stable and potentially expand, not, not materially, but, you know, 50 basis points, maybe just as a base case. And then I think NOI growth will stay pretty solid, but maybe slow a bit. Um, but with, you know, with that sort of, with those sort of market conditions, it's not like that's the end of the world. But what is so scary is where, where valuations are today. The prices you're paying today means that you have to be perfect in your execution or, you know, you, you might have some things go wrong. And so I think people are kind of underwriting the way maybe they've been for the last five years. But now, like I said earlier, is the time to maybe bring in your risk and make sure you're find quality deals that are, are well underwritten and you're not banking on cap rate compression to have a successful exit. Yep. When these things happen and money's getting in too easy, people get overconfident and they think they're really smart, but then that's when you're set up for a big downfall. <laughs> yeah. I mean, hopefully not. I think, I think definitely long-term multifamily is, is one of the best investments just given the demographics. And then when you add the tax benefits, it's it's just a, a really great investment. But like you're saying, 
if you if you buy wrong, uh, it just you know it depends how bad the market goes. But uh, we do want to be aware of of that situation. Yep. So what's next for you? What are your goals for the next year or two years? Our goal for over the next year is to acquire a hundred million dollars in assets, hopefully all in Houston, and that way we can really grow a strong management presence in Houston, and then an additional thousand units the year after, and and build up a nice portfolio and, and have some good experience. And then from there, decide where we see the most opportunity value. You know, the market may be different in that time. And so there might be a new market that we'd like to go into and, and expand our business. Uh, other ways we are considering kind of growing and expanding is to start our own management company, bring management in-house and really be able to affect the most change on the property by being extra hands-on with the with the property management. Have you heard of a guy called Vinny Chopra? Yes. Yeah, I think he's in Houston too, isn't he? Yeah, he. Uh, we, we've spoken about Houston. He's definitely bullish on Houston. I think he still owns some property there. He just recently sold. Uh, yeah, he, he's definitely an active buyer and seller. Yeah, because I remember cause he, he's up here with me in like California, right? And uh, I went to a couple of meetups where he was there. And yeah, he did everything mm-hmm. in-house, in-house management. So definitely a way to yep. go once you have enough enough buildings. You have to have scale. And then obviously in a relatively close to each other. Nice. Cool. So that's all the questions I have for you today. Do you have any last words that you'd like to say? Uh, really, thanks for having me. I appreciated a uh, good conversation. If anyone wants to get in touch with me, you can shoot me an email at rob at lonestarcapgroup.com. And, you know, happy to discuss multifamily real estate, underwriting. I can send you my model that I've, uh, you know, spent over 100 hours building or, you know, whatever else you're looking for. Awesome. Do you have a website by any chance? Especially if someone yeah. wants to contact you and maybe invest with your guys' deals? Sure. Yeah. So you can find me at lonestarcapgroup.com. So same as my email address. And there you can message us through the website and get in touch further. Perfect. Well, thanks a lot, Rob. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. You definitely gave me a lot to chew on. I have a whole page of notes. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I know you're a good note taker. All right. Thanks, man. Here are some of the key takeaways from today's podcast. You need to meet people. Go to conventions and travel a lot. Build strong relationships, especially with people who have experience. Listen to The Bigger Pockets and Joe Fairless's Best Ever podcast, and even this one, to get the basic information that you need. Learn how to properly underwrite deals, and this can be from reading books or by finding mentors. And you might as well start big. It takes the exact same amount of work, but because of the scale, you'll be able to make your profits increase. And it's not about having all of the resources at once. It's about being resourceful. And also be careful when looking at a deal. The market used to be very forgiving, but it might not be anymore. Take up Rob on his offer and get his model. Send him an email at rob at Lone Star Cap Group or check out his website at lonestarcapgroup.com. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It'll take less than a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at seanpanrealty at gmail.com. That's S-E-A-N-P-A-N-R-E-A-L-T-Y at gmail.com. Thanks and have a great day.